That precious, yeah. So I wanted to show that to you instead of the bumper because we've been encouraging you to memorize Psalm 23. So even a little girl can do it. So it's okay. You might need some help. You might drool a little bit, but it's okay. It's all right. Keep at it. All right. Well, thanks for being here. I'm Pastor Scott. Uh, we're continuing our series, Life Without Lack, through Psalm 23. We've been through most of the first three verses, and today we're going to go through the second part of verse three. But first, a life without lack is a completely satisfied and sustained life no matter what happens. It's not a matter of gritting your teeth or hanging on for dear life. It's a matter of real provision directly for those who allow God to be their shepherd. Is that true of your life? I, I want it to be true for my life. It's not always true, but uh, there's a reason for that. Today we're going through the second part of verse 3, which is, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, and we're calling it indecisive. Why are we calling it indecisive? What's going on in us when we're indecisive? Maybe we're lost, not quite sure which way to go, and then we're indecisive, or maybe... Maybe we're confused and the options are just overwhelming. We don't have enough information and so we're indecisive or maybe we're untrusting. Don't trust that way, don't trust that way. So we just kind of do our own thing. So we're indecisive in that way also. Today we're gonna be talking about uh, sheep, us, because when we're indecisive, when we're scared, nervous, indecisive creatures who need God's shepherd, if we're going to have that, we need the shepherd if we're going to have any measure of a life without lack. So welcome, fellow sheep. We're also going yeah. So we're also going to be talking today about what needs to happen before God leads us in paths of righteousness, what paths of righteousness are, and how confusion around knowing God's will makes us indecisive. So before I pray, I've got a little bit of a long intro, so hang in there with me because it's necessary to review where we've been if we're going to understand this part of verse 3. So number one, the first statement, God always restores us from where we are before he guides us to where he wants us to be. I've heard time and time again people say things like, I really want to find the sweet spot in my relationship with God. Or I'm having a hard time connecting with God. Or I'm, I'm struggling in my walk. So what's going on there? Well, it might be at the root of it, there might be some indecisiveness. You might be lost completely. You might be confused about who God is and what he's done for us. Or you might be untrusting because things sound so incredible according to God's word. So <clears throat> there might be an idea of God in your head, but has that reality really settled in your heart so that you can truly live out a life without lack? So what about this absurdity? Does, does the first verse of Psalm 23 sound absurd to you? The Lord, the Lord is my shepherd, do you understand what that means? The one who gave life to every living thing on the planet, he's my shepherd. The one, who, the one who leads and preserves and protects his flock of people throughout all generations, that's, that's my shepherd. 
the same one who commands the winds and the waves and the one who ushered in these beautiful desert storms that we see that are so beautiful but powerful at the same time and wash the desert clean. The one who knit together in our mother's wombs you and me and all these incredible little kids we see running around here. The one who numbers my days. The creator and sustainer of all things. That Lord, that Lord is my shepherd. That is incredible. And that is on the brink of absurd. And it is absurd without Christ. Spurgeon wrote that no man has the right to consider himself the Lord's sheep unless his nature has been renewed. For the description of the unconverted man in the Bible is not a picture of a sheep, but of wolves and goats. But none of this is true because I believe it or you believe it or even King David believes it. It's true because God said it, God made a way for it, and he gave himself to us. It was his choice. I shall not want. So how many of you were taught that this is an exercise in self-control? A lot of people were taught that, but it's not. It's a statement of confidence in God's provision. And God's provision is not just the tangible things, what we're going to eat and sleep and wear on our backs and we're going to lay on our heads. It's also about our identity. I shall not want is contingent upon the Lord is my shepherd. And the sweetest two words in the whole psalm, I think, are those single syllable words. He is my shepherd. He is my shepherd. So whether he is a shepherd to no one else or everyone else, he is for sure a shepherd to me. He cares for me. He watches over me. He preserves me. He protects me. He provides for me. And it's in present tense because even if I'm struggling, I am right now under the pastoral care of God himself. And we need to tune our ears to the shepherd who calls us his sheep. And John John 10, verses 27 and 28, Jesus is talking. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will not, never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. So his provision includes your identity. I shall not want translate. Not only, uh, it means I shall not be abated, which means that you'll not only not lack in those tangible things, but it also means I shall not be made less of. I shall not be diminished. I shall not decrease. And when the Lord is your shepherd, you are his and he defines you. One of my favorite passages of scripture is Isaiah 43, one through seven. And this is God talking. It says, who created you? And he's talking to Jacob and Israel. So his leader and his people, he says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. So God redeems his people, and, and we are redeemed through Christ. And what does that mean? He says, I have called you by name. This doesn't mean that he calls me by my name, Scott, or your name, Ray, or Charlene, or or anything else, it means that he has given us his name, and that's where he says, you are mine. He has put his stamp on us. You are God's workmanship and his property, bought twice by creation and also through the blood of Christ. It blows me away in this uh, passage, verse three says, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, 
What has he done for us? He gives Egypt as a ransom for you, Cush and Saba in exchange for you. He is, he's given nations, nations for us. Why? Because you are precious in his eyes and honored and he loves you. I give men in return for you, people in exchange for your life. That is incredible. Do we live there? We should because our identity is determined, secured, empowered by God, but also in God. When it says he makes me lie down in green pastures, makes me is, it's a soul response. Have you ever said that something makes you uncomfortable or makes you nervous? Or someone makes you mad or makes you happy? My wife makes me happy. And when she cooks, she makes me even happier. (laughs) And after I enjoy one of the awesome meals that she knows that I love, I just, it makes me want to snuggle up with her, show her my affection, curl up on the couch, lay down, watch a movie, and just doze off in contentment. (sighs) So this makes me lie down. A soul response comes out of what we experience and what we believe and think about what we experience and where it came from. And a true encounter with the risen Lord brings love and trust and confidence at a soul response level. But, but an indecisive soul response means that we're missing some information. We're not getting something. We're missing some truth. Because if the concept of the shepherd is anything other than your loving father that has created you, redeemed you, given you his name and his son and all that is his, then his pastures won't appear green to you. His waters won't be calming to you. And if that's true, you won't be willing to be led down paths of righteousness and all the rest that this psalm promises. This psalm is David's sole response to God that he experienced in so many ways, on bright days and successful days, but also through dark, dark valleys dark times, hard times. And so I pray that as we study this, that this is our soul response to the shepherd, souls that are filled with uh, and truly knowing the overwhelming sufficiency of God's grace and provision and protection and a real sense that we are actually his. That's the sweet spot. That's the reality that if you can soak in it, if you can marinate your heart in that, then you will stretch out with pleasure and lay down and doze off in contentment. The word uh, leads beside me in still waters and leads me in paths of righteousness. It's two different words for leads. The first is a leading back and the second is a leading forward. See, since the fall, God has been calling us back to him. He leads me back to his green pastures and still waters so that I can find rest and revitalization and renewal where in him and what he has for me. And as we learned last week, restores my soul literally means he causes my life to return. And that's important. He causes my life to return. Why is that important? It's because spiritually we're dead. We are dead in our sin. And we need to be made alive spiritually before God will lead us forward in paths of righteousness. So we need the good shepherd to show us a way. In fact, we need the good shepherd to make a way for us because dead men and women don't go anywhere. But also we have an access problem. 
I can't get to where I need to go to God without Christ, without his righteousness. And therefore, to get to where I need to go to God, I need him to die for me. I need to him to pay the debt that I cannot pay myself. And I, only know, I don't only need that, I need him to live for me. I need, I need his resurrection to be true so that I might have a relationship with God while I'm here on earth to get through the garbage that I go through and live life to the fullest in spite of all that stuff. <clears throat> so I need Christ. John 14, 6 says, says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Not you, not the world around you. No one comes to the Father except by me. We cannot restore ourselves. So Christ has to shepherd us to the Father where restoration and renewal are found. You know what's crazy, though, is after God has done that, we're, we sheep, are, we're really not good at self-soothing, are we? We're not good at slowing down. <clears throat> we're not good at following Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I'm God. We're good at medicating ourselves. We're good at putting a Band-Aid on things, but God, Jesus, is not into Band-Aids. He's into making all things new. He wants to give us soul rest. And from there, he wants to give us a new heart and a new spirit that we would go to him and pray to him and, and he would be our God and we would be as his people and we would follow in his ways and find the best life ever. So God meets me where I am and Romans 5.8 says that, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and from there he restores my soul. When my soul grows sorrowful, he revives it. When it is sinful, he sanctifies it. When it is weak, he strengthens it. But remember that he does it. He does it. You have some responsibility, but for the most part, he's carrying the heavy end of the log. So these first three verses here are a glimpse of God's uh, redemptive plan. He calls me back, leads me back, carries my dead body back. Where? To his presence, his, his peace, and his place of plenty. Why? To restore my soul in right relationship with him. And then, then he'll lead me in paths of righteousness. So God always restores us from where we are before he guides us to where he wants to be because restoration always comes before obedience and sanctification. So that's the intro. Let's pray. Lord, all we like sheep have gone astray we have all turned every one of us to his own way. That's what your word says, and it's true. But you, Lord, have laid the iniquity of us all on your son. You've laid it on the good shepherd. So today, Lord, help our hearts and our minds to be still, to know to the depths of our souls more of these green pastures and still waters that are found in your presence and according to your provision. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonders of your promises and truths because, God, we are desperate for you. And although that we're desperate for you, there are some times that we're indecisive about you despite all that you've done for us. So, God, we ask you to forgive us for that. Forgive us and restore our souls through your goodness, your grace, and your truth that we may each say with confidence and assurance that the Lord is my shepherd. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. <clears throat>
So he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Paths of righteousness means right paths. They're the paths that he has for us. They're the paths that he designed us to follow that we would have the best life ever. And it's not about us, it's about him. So remember that he leads us forward and it's under his sovereign wisdom and control. And I can't stress enough how important it is for us to remember that restoration comes before obedience and sanctification. But it's not just, those things are not events. They're processes. Restoration happens every single day. Sanctification happens every single day. Why does his word say his mercies are new every morning? Because I need them. You need them every single morning. And after he's restored us, he calls us to obedience and he sanctifies us from the inside out. You see, when we have an obedience problem, before we jump to our efforts, we ought to be asking ourselves some restoration questions. Who is my shepherd? What do I believe about him? Is he truly the Lord? And who is the Lord? What has he done for me? Do you understand what it means that he died for me in a way I could not die for myself? Do we understand what he has for us? That what he has for us is himself? Do we understand that he's given us his name, who I am? Do those truths, have they sunk in? Do they truly restore your soul? Because I believe that our obedience issues are attached to our, our restoration issues. And when we're not truly trusting and relying on him and loving God above all things and other things as ourselves and counting it all joy and so many other things that the Bible says mark a Christian, it's time for a restoration tune-up. It's time for a restoration tune-up. But understand that the shepherd comes even before the green pastures and still waters. We cannot pursue God's peace before we pursue the peacemaker. We can't want or have his provision before the provider, the protection before the protector. We can't have the love before the lover of our souls. Number two, pursuing passive righteousness before pursuing the one who is righteous will lead to either works righteousness or disobedience. Scripture is clear, and we talk about it a lot, that we cannot earn favor or rest or anything else through what we do. <clears throat> it comes from and in the Father, the shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus. It comes through Christ. So I want to focus on a particular kind of obedience. It's this fear-based disobedience um, that I want to focus on. The perspective is that sheep are often indecisive because they are motivated by fear. They are defenseless animals, and they know it. They are so fearful that they will even die of dehydration before they drink from a stream that makes a noise that they are afraid of. It's true. But all of us are like sheep. I can remember, can remember in my early Christian days, and even sometimes, even now, being a little bit vulnerable, that <clears throat> these paths of righteousness, when I look at God's word and what he has for me, and when it includes things like suffering and particular kinds of sanctification and repentance and all that, those are kind of like scary streams for the young Christian or someone who doesn't completely understand or remember who the Lord is. And so we get a little bit wonky. 
And the sheep says that I'm comfortable where I am. I might be afraid, but if I don't move, maybe things will be okay. And unless you first tell me where you're taking me, I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to keep a safe distance. I'm just going to stay right where I am. And spiritually speaking, what that says is, I am glad to call you Savior, but I don't trust you enough to call you Lord. And isn't it interesting that even under the care of God himself that we are so nervous and anxious about knowing everything? Do you think God wants us to know everything? No. (laughs) But we want to know everything, don't we? To an unhealthy extent sometimes. So there's two questions on your bulletin. Can I know God's will? And if I did, would I follow it? So talk for a moment amongst yourselves about those two things. Okay, let's answer those questions. There's a book called Just Do Something by Kevin DeYoung. It's a really tiny book. You could probably read it in one sitting, but it is packed through full of incredible truth. And, and I took this next idea, God's threefold will, from this book. He talks about God's will in three different ways, three different kinds of God's will. And so the first one, uh, fill in number three, is God's will of decree. God's will of decree. It's all that God ordains according to his own good and sovereign purpose. And that purpose is the restoration of his creation. Here's what DeYoung says about that. Everything that comes to pass is according to God's sovereign decree. And all that he decrees will ultimately come to pass. God's will of decree cannot be thwarted. It is immutable and fixed. God is sovereign over all things, nature and nations, Animals and angels, spirits and Satan, wonderful people and wicked people, even disease and death. To steal a line from Augustine, this will of God is the necessity of all things. In other words, what God wills will happen, and what happens is according to God's will. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Sheep don't like that. Sheep don't like that. If God told you everything, if, he, if you think about the horrible things that have happened or the challenging things that have happened to you, and God woke you up in the morning and said, Wake up. This is what I have in store for you today. No! We would freak out. It's a bit troubling for us. But as shocking as it sounds, God's sovereign plan of restoration hinges on the most heinous act of injustice ever perpetrated on the earth, the murder of his son. If we were to come up with a restoration plan, a restoring my soul plan, we wouldn't say, kill the shepherd. Kill my Savior. Hang him on a cross. No, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't do that. 
But that took place according to God's gracious and predetermined plan. Acts 4, 27 through 28 says, We're gathered together against your, your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your predestined and your plan predestined to take place. It was God's plan. In fact, what's even more troubling is it was his pleasure to have his son die on the cross for you and I. You see, if we don't understand who God is and we don't trust in his plan and not our perception of it, we'll either fight against him or we'll run away from him. The next kind of God's will is God's will of desire. Number four, God's will of desire. It's all that God commands of and desires from his creatures. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're God's creature. <laughs> God's will of desire demands our obedience in a way that brings him glory and brings us eternal rest in him. God's will of desire, right here. It's his word. This tells us everything that we need to know about the shepherd, what he has for us, how we're to be obedient, how sanctification happens, everything. If God's will of decree is the way things are going to be, then his will of desire is the way things ought to be. Now, there's an ancient argument over which is higher, divine sovereignty or human responsibility. Don't get up on that soapbox. You're going to miss the point altogether because scripture, scripture is crystal clear that we are all under God's sovereignty, his sovereign power, but we are also all responsible for our own actions. And we teach both here at Desert Breeze because that's what God's word teaches. There's an example of that in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. First, do not let the world or the, th do not love the world or the things in the world. This is a description of God's will of desire. It's a command to us. John is not describing God's will of decree yet, but John is describing how we are to walk in paths of righteousness concerning our attitude and relationship with the things of the world. That's God's will of desire. Verse 16 shows how we do it poorly. And verse 17 begins by saying what happens uh, according to God's plan. It says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. That's his will of decree. He'll have no other gods before him because there are no other gods before him. And those things, those desires are going to pass away according to his will of decree. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's his will of decree and his will of desire. When we abide on him, we will have eternal life. So he's telling us, don't go this way, sheep. Go this way. But remember, passive righteousness, follow renewal. Hebrew 13, 20 and 21 tell us this. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, sounds familiar, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So there's restoration, there's renewal, there's the sacrifice, there's the resurrection. Why did he do that for us? So that we will be equipped, he will equip us with everything good that we may do his will, working in us, it's a process, in you, that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, the one who be glory forever 
and ever. Passive righteousness for his name's sake. Amen. So we have to understand that passive righteousness, obedient, looks like a particular thing. It's not merely just doing things that look pleasing to him. Is that they, we please him not only with how we do things, but why we do things. And he wants us to have a heavenly perspective. Matthew 7, 21 says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's a heavenly perspective. How did Jesus teach us how to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we must have a heavenly perspective in obedience. It's not works righteousness. The next kind of God's will of decree is God's will, or will is his will of direction. This is number five on your notes. And it's the one that we want the most, but the one we get hung up on the most. And there's this unhealthy conventional pursuit of God's will that just does not work and even whole churches participate in seeking God's will in this way. And it treats God's will like some novel, novelty store horseshoe trick. You've seen one of those, the two horseshoes are welted together with a couple of pieces of links of chain and a, and a ring in the middle. And if we manipulate it just right and we twist it just right, maybe we force it, we can figure out God's will. It does not work that way. Or maybe it's like a corn maze. There's one way in and one way out and most of the time we spend in God's will is confusing and we're lost. That's not God's will. That's not how it works. Or there's the magic eight ball. How many of you are old enough to know what the magic eight ball is, right? So we get the magic eight ball and we ask some random question and we shake it. Shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it, shake it. We shake God's will and we wait for some random answer to come to the top for our own interpretation, right? Must be God's will. Or I don't like that. I'm going to shake it again. God's will doesn't work that way. That's treating God like a God of confusion. He's not. That's the title reserved for the enemy. God's not holding out on us. That is a lie that started in the garden by the God of confusion. God is not holding out on us. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. So regarding God's will of direction, it is often a mystery. He's not going to tell us everything. But, the will, but his will of direction never violates his word and always serves his purposes, not ours. So said in a different way, his will of direction, should he choose to share it with us, never violates his will of decree or his will of desire, but instead is intended to accomplish it. Deuteronomy 29 makes this point, 29:29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. He's not going to tell us everything. He knows us too well. He knows the condition of his sheep. He knows how we will respond. So he's going to keep some things for us. I will trust him with that. But the things that are revealed right here belong to us, to our children forever. It's not going to change. 
Why did, we give it to, why did he give it to us? So we could go through a one-year Bible plan? No, that we may do all the words in the law. It's the law of life, not the law of death. But understand that obedience does not guarantee clarity. Well, I'm doing all these things for you, God. You could give me some more information. But remember, he's God, we're not. He can see things and he knows things that we don't and probably never will until the other side of eternity when we go, oh, okay. So we must understand and trust him and we must do what 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we live by and not by correct. We live by faith and not by sight. So it's our job to follow the leader and our job is to do his will but we're sheep and we don't like it and we kind of run around sometimes all frightened. So let's talk about following the shepherd. There's some ways that we do that and one of the ways that we shouldn't do that. First is don't invert the gospel. Don't invert the gospel. Um, a book that we handed out at the Men's Summit by Mark Batterson, that's where I got this idea from. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, concept and it's true. And uh, so we don't invert the gospel. We sit to all, submit to all that comes through God's loving hand. Restoration and sanctification are never-ending processes. <clears throat> so Mark Batterson in this all-in book, he says that there's uh, churches full of people across the nation that love Jesus, have a heart for Jesus, do their best to be obedient to Jesus, but they've got this twisted idea that in church that's what happens but outside of the church they invert the gospel and they, don't, they love Jesus but they don't want to go anywhere without him right behind them right behind them God is not our co-pilot that bumper sticker should be burned right following paths of righteousness is difficult even with God that's why it's called sanctification. But disobedience is impossible, or excuse me, obedience is impossible without God. So you need to ask yourself, are you willing to allow God to take you places that you don't want to go, to have you do things that you don't want to do, so he can accomplish in you something that you cannot do for yourself. That's the sanctification process. Sanctification process is a purification process that both you and God have particular roles. He leads, guides, strengthens, encourages, provides, and protects. You trust, follow, obey, and worship. And sanctification leads to more restoration and more restoration sets you up for more sanctification it's a wonderful process number seven find your strength and confidence in Christ and be obedient to his word and don't spiritualize fear and laziness these five conventional approaches to seeking God's will uh, of direction, they don't work. And let me describe them to you. First is wrongly focusing all the attention on non-moral issues. God could care less about the flavor of ice cream you buy. 
He doesn't care. He cares about, are you being a good steward of your body? Are you praying through the 31 flavors once a month? <laughs> Don't do that. That's not according to God's will. His God's will of desire tells us to, that our bodies are a temple of the living Lord and that we're supposed to take care of them, right? God doesn't care about the car that you buy or the house that you buy. He cares if you're being a good steward of what he's given you and you're buying those houses and cars for the right reasons. Are you coveting? Can you afford it? So don't do that. Don't focus or look for God's will of direction in non-moral issues. Look to his will of desire. Also, wrongly believing that God is playing hide-and-seek regarding his will of direction. You see, demanding that he tells me his will of direction means that I don't trust him. He's given us plenty of direction to follow, hasn't he? And so... <clears throat> If I'm going to demand that he, is, he tell me his will of direction, shouldn't I be asking myself how I, am how I am doing with what he has told me instead of obsessing about what he hasn't told me? That's very convicting for me. I hope it is for you. I believe that when we trust God and are in agreement with his will of decree and passionately living out his will of desire, that his direction will be clear to us, and even if it isn't, our desire to be obedient to him will outweigh our desire to know everything. Next is wrongly having a preoccupation with the future. When we obsess about the future, we become anxious and anxiety <clears throat> turns into indecisiveness. But anxiety is living out the future before it gets here. We are told not to be anxious about anything. But we're supposed to be responsible, so if you're in his will of desire, you will understand that nothing happens unless he ordains it, right? Is God sovereign or not? Is he Lord of all or not? If I don't trust in his will, I have to say, well, how's my will going to work out? How green are the pastures that I can get on my own? How calm are the waters that I'm bringing myself beside? Next is undermining personal responsibility, accountability, and initiative. This is that spiritualizing fear and laziness. If you're afraid of putting yourself out there for no good reason or having a little bit of a faith crisis, don't spiritualize your indecisiveness. We hear people say all the time, well, let me pray about it. God hasn't revealed that to me or God told me or God didn't tell me or worse yet, God told me to tell you didn't tell me that. So to put it into perspective, I, I read about this girl. She was uh, a Christ, somewhat of a Christian, I guess. <clears throat> she had this unhealthy uh, idea about God's will, kind of lighthearted about it. Uh, she wasn't really into dating. She was heavily into school and was trying to build a career, but there was this brand-new Christian guy that was interested in her, liked her profile on the dating app, and started dating her, and they'd been out a few times, and uh, he, was, he was becoming enamored with her, and she was just like, could take it or leave it. So he got up the nerve to, to go to her and say, you know, I've really been thinking about it and praying about it, and I'd really like to, you know, take the chance at a more serious relationship. What do you think? 
Well, I prayed about it, and the Lord told me that there's no future in this with you and I. When instead, she just really wasn't interested. So not only was this young Christian confused, he was rejected by her and the Holy Spirit. How devastating. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. No, I'm not interested. I'm into school, I'm into work and dating. I could really take it or leave it. Wouldn't that be so much better? Be honest. Speak the truth in love. Or yes, but let's define our relationship because I don't want you to get hurt. It seems like you want way more than I'm willing to give. So don't undermine your personal responsibility and accountability or initiative. Next is being enslaved to the hopeless chains of subjectivism. These are gut feelings. <clears throat> Sometimes God's will to us of direction is crystal clear because he not only puts it on our heart, he surrounds us with people and say, you know, you should do this or that, or you should go this or go there. God really has equipped you for these things, and it's crystal clear what God is calling us to do. But because we're nervous, sometimes we're just making excuses based on our subjective feelings of fear rather than trusting in God's promise to go where he's clearly calling us. And we say things like, God hasn't given me a piece about it. And what we're really doing is we're waiting for God to say, it'll be safe, it'll be just like you want it, it won't be hard, it'll be blue skies, won't require any sacrifice. God's not going to tell us that. That requires no faith. There is no sanctification value in following God that way. So these kinds of misguided spirituality say, say if things appear too hard or peg out my fear meter, I'm just going to blame God. So Philippians 2.12 says, work out your faith with what? Fear and trembling. Your, your fear meter is going to peg out sometimes, but who's your shepherd? What does he have for, has, have for you? Who does he say you are? Next is consecrate yourself daily to lay hold of what he has in store for you. <clears throat> this pattern of con con uh, consecration began when God's people had made it 40 years through the desert. They came to the edge of the Jordan. Moses has died. God rose up another leader, Joshua, before they were going to go across the Jordan. And Joshua told the people, Joshua 3, 5, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Consecration meant that God's people were to ceremonially and morally set themselves apart and prepare themselves inside and out <clears throat> to prepare for what God had to bless them with and to use them uh, for his holy purposes. And so it's a process. It's a consecration. The word consecration, if you, if you divide it up a little bit, con means to join with. Secration is where we get the word sacredness. So it means to Join with sacredness. Get on the same page as God. Settle it in your heart, who he is, what he has for you, that he is your shepherd, and get on his same page and prepare yourself inside and out for what he wants to do for you, in you, and through you. And it's a daily effort. If restoration is necessary every day, then consecration is necessary every day. So how do you consecrate yourself? How do you, how do you uh, start your day? 
I know that there's busyness of getting to work and uh, maybe getting the kids ready and stuff, but you need to consecrate yourself. You need to get on the same page God is and say, God, I know you're my shepherd. I just read it in your word, and let me pray through some scripture, and let me, let me get with you so you can restore my soul, and I can ask you, Daddy, where are you taking me today? Consecrate yourselves daily. And Mark Batterson talks about it in his book that consecration is more than checking the boxes of a list list of Christian to-dos or doing your spiritual chores. In fact, he says that spiritual disciplines are good, but it's more than behavioral modification. It's more than conformity to a moral code. It's more than good deeds. It's something deeper, something truer. Consecration is an ever-deepening love for Jesus, a Christ-like trust in a heavenly Father, and an unwavering obedience to the Holy Spirit. Consecration is all that and a thousand things more. You know, you can come to church every single week, even twice on Sundays, and never encounter God. Well, I go to church because it's a good example to my kids. Or I go to church because so-and-so makes me. Or I guess it's Easter, so I guess I'll go to church. And never encounter God. You can pray all day long. And what I mean by this is you can bring God your list all day long. But never stop and listen to what he has to say to you. God has something to say to us. He cares about what we want. He knows it before it even comes off our lips. But he wants to speak to us. He gave us his spirit to speak to us. And so we need to consecrate ourselves, not in doing things, but in those things that we do to encounter the risen Lord, to come into his presence so he can restore us and sanctify us. Number nine, do not demand knowledge at the expense of wisdom. What is wisdom? I've heard it said that wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. So what are you going through? What are you troubled with? What do you lack wisdom in? Well, first take what you do know and apply it to your circumstance, but what does the Bible say in John John 1, 5 about if we lack wisdom? What are we supposed to do? Ask who? Ask God. Go to the shepherd. What a concept. But we're also supposed to seek much counsel. We're supposed to ask other Christians who know God for wisdom. And when we ask God, he gives generously without reproach. Don't be ashamed. And it will be given to him. So ask, 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 and seek good counsel through others. Just be okay with the level of knowledge that you're given. And trust God with the rest. Trust God with what he's already told you. It's so simple, but man, it's not easy, is it? It's so hard. Because sometimes we don't understand the valleys that we're in. And just like obedience, knowledge doesn't guarantee clarity. Peace evades us when we don't know what we don't know. And we take our eyes off Jesus Philippians 4, 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds by giving you all the answers. It doesn't say that. It says it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
by pointing us to and giving us the one who has all the answers, the one who is the answer. There will be dark times encountered in your life and trials and troubles and suffering. And I got to tell you that I've been a pastor here since 2002 and I have seen immense, heartbreaking trials, troubles, suffering, loss. Some of you have lost parents, spouses, brothers, sisters. Even now, you may have a loved one that's just fading away into eternity. I know more than one family in this church that have had loved ones, even children, murdered, raped, marriages lost, jobs lost, houses lost. We've been praying for one brother for a kidney for as long as I can remember. There's this one dear lady whose kids are just not even on the radar with God and she faithfully asks for prayer for them and we pray for her all the time. I know some of you suffer with cancer. I got a gut punch phone call a couple of weeks ago that my little sister three years younger than me that has cancer. And sometimes it's not just one thing, sometimes it's several things. And like Job You're asking God, if you're always with me, if you'll never leave me or forsake me, why are these things happening to me? Where are you? But what I've come to know is that healing never, ever comes from things being explained to us. They often come from hands that we cannot see. And those hands are nail-scarred hands that belong to the one who is the answer. And I have to tell you that I'm so, I'm so thankful for our church family. I'm so thankful for the faith that I've seen in some of you that you've suffered so well and you know where to lean and people surround you with other people that help you through it and point you towards Christ. And you, like David, are saying, number 10, Psalm 23 is more than knowledge about the shepherd. It is a proclamation of truth When the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Wherever I find myself, good or bad, he is there and it is green pastures and he leads me to calm fresh waters where I can find rest and protection and provision. He shows me which way to go when I'm scared and lonely and frustrated and even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's dark, I will fear no evil because I know, I know that God is with me. It's scary, but I'm going to keep walking and holding on to my shepherd, my Lord, my daddy. Why? Because I know that he is going to do what he can only do. He helps me. He protects me, restores my soul, guides me, comforts me, provides for me. When I can feel the enemy breathing down my neck, he says, now, now, I'm going to give you a real feast. Pull up a chair to my table. Feast on my all-sufficient grace and let me pour my healing spirit on you until your cup overflows. And it will never stop because only goodness and my steadfast love will follow you all the days of your life. 
and he will always bring me back to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So where does God lead? Back to himself and forward in paths of righteousness. How and why does God lead? Number 11, God leads us through his word, his people, and his spirit, and he leads us to himself for his namesake. He is the creator, I am the created. He knows what he's doing, where he's going, I'm not sure. I need to be studying his word, seeking much counsel, praying for wisdom, not permission, and I can't be passive about it. I can't be passive about it, men. I can't be passive about it, women. He leads me in paths of righteousness right ways. How? Through his word, his people, and his spirit. And you can get to where you want to go in lots of different ways, but God's word says in the end it leads to death. It says that the Lord determines our step. This means that his will of decree will not be thwarted by our bad decisions or disobedience. It also means that he loves us too much to let us find the, the desires of our heart, the longings that we're really looking for anywhere but in him. He calls us for obedience and holiness, and that call to us is for our happiness and wholeness. He leads me in passive righteousness for his namesake. It's all about him. It's all about his glory, his will, his plan, because it's all his It's all about him and who he is, and that's why we are his and can benefit from those truths. If your concept of him is skewed by the slightest way, by the convenient image of the world, or the world's version of a weak uh, savior that's no Lord at all, then you won't trust in this past that he has for you. You'll fear the natural instead of trusting in the supernatural sovereign power that he has over all things, And you won't be obedient to his clearly stated will of desire meant for your good and glory. And if that is true, it's not that God is holding out on you on revealing himself to you. It's that we're either not willing to be led or we're following another shepherd, as Ray said last week. And if that troubles you, good, good. God wants it to trouble you. He has a solution for your trouble and he wants you to know something. And maybe, maybe you're just broken and worn out and weary over the things that uh, you just don't understand. But God wants you to know something too. He wants you to know that his desire is to call you back to himself so that he can restore your soul. Because the fact is that he has given us his truth He's given us himself and he wants to take you on a journey that you you can't imagine. And he wants you to be able to say like David that you can believe with confidence in what he promises and that it's as real as the chair that you sit in and that who you are is nothing less than what he says you are, his sons, his daughters, his children. So stand with me and let's with conviction not just read this but make it a proclamation of truth that is true about who we are and who our shepherd is. Let's read it together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Yes. All right. Well, let me close this in prayer. Lord, help us to take these realities from our heads to our hearts so that we might have an inward, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in your presence and in your province and for your name's sake. And we pray in the name above all names, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great weekend.